0: Boy, have I had a day. What a day. I mean, of all the days, this was the day, literally the day. There has never been a day in the history of mankind like this day. In order for you to understand, I've got to take you back to the very beginning. It started like almost every other day starts. I got up before my wife and kids and arrived at work before the sun was up. I was there so early because I had to finish an important business proposal. Lately, I've been skipping church, been skipping the kids' games, been skipping dinner. I've been skipping everything to get this proposal done. The reason I've got to get this proposal done is because the boss is kind of tightening the screws on everyone. And he's told me if this thing flies with the Adams Group, there may be a partnership for me in it. And I want to provide for my family, so I'm really pushing for this to work. I parked my car, went through the front door of our corporate office. I'm walking into the front lobby and I hear Joe, um, I don't even know Joe's last name, Joe the security guard. Maybe that's his last name, Joe the security guard. Good morning, Mr. Matheson. By the way, that's my name. I'm Daniel James Matheson. Good morning, Mr. Matheson. Hi, Joe. How are you today, sir? I'm fine, Joe. Is the Lord being good to you today, sir? Yeah, the Lord's being good to me. And he starts quoting a verse. Remember, no temptation is... I slip into the elevator and push the button to the 20th floor. Look, I know it was kind of rude to ignore him, but the guy drives me nuts. He's way too sunny for me, especially so early in the morning. I'm heading to my office when I see that the door is open, which means that the cleaning lady, Sarah, is still in there. Now, I've told her a thousand times I want the office clean when I arrive, because I got a lot of work to do, and it's awkward and annoying to wait for her, especially today with the proposal due. I've got to get to work. So I just entered the office and sit at my desk. I'm a Christian, so I don't want to verbally tell her I don't want her there. So I tried to do it non-verbally. Ever done this? I'm sitting at my desk, typing away, just working like she isn't there. I'm communicating with every fiber of my being that I don't want to talk to her right now. But of course, she wants to talk to me. Hey, Mr. Matheson. Hello. She actually comes closer and bends in to look at the pictures on my desk. Oh, your children, Mr. Matheson, they're so beautiful, and so is your wife. I can tell she wants to know my wife's name. But does she really need to know that now? I act like I didn't hear her completely, and I just mumble, oh, yeah, okay, okay, fine. She gets the hint after a while, and she goes to the door, and as she's leaving, she said this. Mr. Matheson, you're a good man, a very good man. I pray for you and your wife and your children all the time and I just want you to know that." Then she walks out. Now I feel guilty, right? She prays for my wife and kids, and I don't even have time to talk. But you know the proposal's gotta get done. For the rest of the morning, I've got people coming in my office time after time after time after time, and they all got stuff to do with my proposal. Some of them have dropped the ball, others are just incompetent, and I'm forced to put more than one of them in their place. I don't enjoy doing that, but when you come up to a deadline, Someone has to do it. At about noon, I've just about got everything together. So two hours before the proposal, I decide to get a bite to eat. I get in my car, and I'm driving down the road. That's when it happened. It happened so suddenly. Just like that, Jesus came back. Jesus came back. Now, in my Bible studies earlier in my life, I'd always learned that one day, Jesus was coming back. And that one day made it sound like it was incessantly in the future. But all of a sudden, it was present. It was real. It happened on, ah, the date's not important, so don't really worry about it. But that day it happened. Let me try to tell you what happened next. I can't explain to you what walking into heaven was like, other than to use an analogy. It was like a ticker tape parade in New York. You know, where everyone's smiling and excited and jumping up and down? It was like that, multiplied by millions of people and millions of emotions. My heart was beating like crazy because of the happiness and excitement in every face. It was contagious. The pure joy was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I was engulfed in the massive crowd of saints, and the whole parade began to run and jump with excitement and anticipation. Something remarkable was happening. A young woman with a hair like a shock of fire and green eyes that sparkled with unspeakable joy paused beside me and with a dazzling smile and a friendly wave shouted, Come on, Daniel, we're going to see Jesus. And as she disappeared into the press, I realized that I knew her. It was Melody. Melody was my co-worker's teenage daughter who had been in a wheelchair back on earth. Now here she was, a healthy young woman filled with strength and life. Caught up in the wave of excitement, I began sprinting along with the crowd. My entire body was infused with an indescribable energy that made running a pure pleasure. I felt like a little kid on the last day of school, dashing out into the light and freedom of the summer. Saints from every age were darting all around me, smiling and waving, eagerly urging one another on. The river of redeemed souls grew deeper and wider as we went. And soon I felt like I was small, like a small fish in an ocean of life. And as we ran, a song of praise began to rise from the stream of saints. Somehow I knew the words like they were written on my heart. It went something like this. As the music died down, I could see a little circle in the distance, at least it looked little from where we were, but as we got closer, I realized that the little circle was really a massive structure. The building reminded me of a huge round stadium, I mean it was massive, it was bigger than a city or a metropolitan area. It was miles and miles and miles across, and I could see streams of Christians pouring into it from all directions. As we got closer, our pace slowed as the line of saints entered the structure through an enormous gate that sparkled like gold. As I waited to reach the gates, I watched the people meeting and rejoicing and embracing, and I was blown away with how incredible this day was. Why didn't I think about it more when I was on earth? As I came closer, I saw that there were angels speaking briefly with those that entered. The angels were not like I had imagined on earth, They didn't have wings or childlike faces, and they certainly weren't scary. They were bright and glorious and strong. They had bodies like men, but I could tell their body wasn't the same as a flesh and bone, earthly body. It was almost more like what I was seeing was the form of their very being. And when I reached the gate, one of the angels greeted me. Welcome, Daniel, child of the king, heir of immortality. How do you know me, I asked. The angel smiled. You're well known here. Everyone in heaven knows them that have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Come in in and take your place before the Bema seat. The Bema seat? I didn't know what that was. What do you mean, I asked. What is the Bema seat? Don't you remember what Christ said in his word? It is written that all saints must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive of the things done in his body according to what he has done, whether it be good or bad. Today is the day that all of God's sons and daughters will appear before the Bema seat. As soon as I heard that, I had a moment of fear. How would I describe the fear? It wasn't like the fear of an enemy. It wasn't like I was afraid of Jesus. It was more like the fear you have of a doctor when you're a kid, and you know there will be some momentary pain when you see a doctor, but you also know in the long run you're going to be better because you went through that momentary pain, but you're still kind of afraid of the doctor. That was kind of how I felt about meeting Jesus, just me and him face to face. I was filled with kind of a loving awe, like it's going to hurt for a few minutes, but long term, it's the best thing that could be happening to me. I said, please, tell me about this judgment What is going to happen? The angel nodded. Don't be afraid, Daniel. You need to understand this is not a punishment for sin. Your sin has been washed away by Christ's blood. The bema seed is a judgment of reward, like when a runner receives a crown for winning a race. This judgment is all about honoring eternal things and removing all that is wood, hay, and stubble. Jesus wants to reward you for your faithfulness on earth. I was still nervous, tried to remember some of the things of eternal significance that I'd done, and I was praying that Jesus' memory was better than mine. We chatted for a little while more before I heard the dull thrumming sound of something approaching from a distance. What is that? Christ is calling his family to the bema seat. The angel stepped back, and I entered the building through the gate. I was not prepared for the spectacle before me. The place was literally miles across, and it was swelling with masses of saints and angels. I just stood there and watched, amazed, awed, and so very thankful for the family of God. I could see millions, no billions of people from every tongue and tribe and nationality. And as I looked at them, I could see their expressions like we were face to face. Tears began to run down my cheeks as the sheer immensity of the Church of Jesus Christ overwhelmed me. I was a part of the family of God. After a moment, I worked my way in and found a row where there was an empty seat. I sat down. My anticipation was growing, as well as my fear and dread. Mixed emotions of love and reverent all welled up inside of me. I turned and smiled at the man sitting next to me. He smiled back and extended his hand. My name is in Jura Nagasaka, he said. When and where are you from? I'd never heard that question before. Now, I've heard where are you from, but never when and where are you from. And I realized that this gathering of people was from the entire history of the church, all 2,000 years, right here all at once. I told him I was on earth when Jesus returned. He said, oh, what a blessed privilege that must have been. When and where are you from? I'm from Japan, and what you would call about the 18th century. I didn't know there were Christians in Japan back then. Oh, yes, he said. You know those wooden boats that brought traders from Europe? They brought missionaries as well, and they brought the good news of Jesus, that the Son of God had come and shed his blood for sinners, and that any sinner that trusted in him alone for salvation would be saved and would spend eternity with God the Father. Many people responded to the gospel, I responded. I fell on my face before the cross and surrendered my life to Jesus. Many of the masters and the people who ruled in our lands responded to Christ as well, but some didn't. My master was one who didn't. He hated and violently persecuted the church, and many of us were put to death. Were you put to death? Yes, in fact, I was beheaded along the side of the road with a long long string of men and women who also trusted Jesus. Right beside me was a samurai who one day earlier had been beheading Christians, but the testimony and love of the saints led him to place his trust in Jesus and become a new creation. We died side by side. I just sat next to him and hung my head. He said, what are you thinking? I feel guilty for the life I led. I never suffered for Jesus like that. My brother, he said, it is in God's hands who suffers and who does not. If he calls you to suffer, you suffer in his grace. If he doesn't, praise be to God for his mercy. The feeling I had wasn't shame. It was just disappointment. I knew I missed out on something. And Jura knew Jesus better through his suffering, and I was jealous of that fellowship. Funny, huh? I never envied another Christian suffering while on earth. I thought, what a difference a day makes in perspective. Everything looked so different from where I sat now. Just then, a bright and glorious angel walked up to the raised platform at the heart of the stadium. He had in his hand a scroll, and the entire crowd grew silent at the sight of him. Something important was about to happen. With a strong voice, the angel cried out, Welcome, the Son of God. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Lamb of God. Let me tell you something, people. Jesus came into the place. I could see him like he was right in front of my face. We all just fell to our knees as we gazed at the face of our Savior. Jesus was so glorious and powerful. All the honor and majesty of heaven was upon him. He was more radiant and exalted than I could have possibly imagined. In that moment, covered in the brightness of his person, I couldn't believe that one so full of glory had humbled himself, taken the form of a man, and became obedient to the death of the cross, and shed his blood for a worthless, selfish person like me. One thought kept running through my mind. How could he have done that for me? Tears began to pour down my face. Why would he desire to share that magnificent glory with me? The good news, the gospel, took on a whole new meaning for me as I saw him. What a miracle of grace that his death made such a glorious salvation so readily available for poor sinners. And Jesus said, Welcome, my brothers and sisters, my purchased ones. I've long awaited this day of reward and glory. I have not forgotten your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward my name. Then he said, Please give honor to my Father. And behind Jesus, how do I explain this? God the Father showed up. Now I understand why John's book of Revelation was so confusing at times, because trying to put this in human language is near impossible. But I'll give it a shot. In the center of the platform appeared a high and lofty throne. There was one sitting on the throne. Circling the throne was a rainbow that glittered with emerald light, and leading up to the throne was a pathway of sapphire blue, and after that, a sea of glass that shimmered like crystal and fire. Winged angelic beings surrounded the throne. I figured that the strange beings were the cherubim and seraphim that the Bible talks about. They burned like fire, but I couldn't tell if the glory was their own or if they were simply reflecting God's glory. And as the glory of God's presence filled the arena, the angelic beings began to worship, bowing before the throne and reverently covering their heads with their wings. Their praise began a kaleidoscope of light bursting from the throne with colors I had never seen before, colors outside of our earthly spectrum. And the celestial glory was so bright that it was nearly impossible to look at. And within that glorious blaze of majesty was him who sat on the throne. It was then that I realized I was in the very presence of God the Father. Now, I don't know about you, but I always thought that God the Father would be like an old man with a beard, and I would kind of crawl up into his lap and talk about life. But then I remembered the Bible teaching that God the Father doesn't have a bodily form, that he's an omnipresent spirit. And the reality of the Father on the throne was so awe-inspiring that we all fell to our knees. And the more we looked at him, and his presence washed over us, we could only fall on the floor. I couldn't even hold on my head. And I heard the cherubim chanting, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the saints and angels joined in the song, and the music started to rise in the presence of God. And together with the saints and the angels, I poured out all the love and worship in my heart. I had just had to exalt and praise the Father. Our praise sounded something like this. how long we praised him for to me it only seemed like an instant i also knew that praising him was what i was made for i thought back to all those days on earth where i sat in a church pew and lazily worshiped how had i ever been bored with worship why had i been so ignorant of who i was really praising i was so foolish for thinking of anything but him during those times i had been living for the passing interests of that earthly day Instead of thinking about the day I was presently experiencing. I wonder if I'd ever really worshipped him in spirit and truth. I didn't realize all those times of worship I could have joined the angels and practice expressing, expressing the joys of eternity. If I had to do it over again, I would praise Jesus differently. If I had only known so much about what I'm telling you now, well... After we finished praising the Lord and wiping the tears from our faces, Jesus walked to the edge of the crystal sea. My friends, he said, the judgment is about to begin. I want you to know what this judgment is about and how you will be judged. Every single person in this great gathering will be evaluated one by one before me alone, in front of all. This is the criteria by which you will be judged. First of all, the faithfulness and stewardship of your life will be judged. In my word, you were taught not to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. I commanded you instead to store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal because I knew that where your treasure was, there your heart would be also. And many of you place your faith in my word and today you shall not be ashamed. You will receive the desire of your heart. For you have stored up for yourselves a great treasure of eternal significance. An abundant entrance into my kingdom awaits you. Also, the true motives of your heart will be judged. In my word, you were taught that man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. Hell and destruction are before my eyes. How much more the hearts of the children of men. I have weighed the secret motives behind your giving and your service and your time and your love. And I know that which is true and that which is wanting. Here at the Bema seat, I will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and I will make manifest the counsels of the heart, and each of you shall receive your just praise from God. It is very important for you all to realize you will not be evaluated in comparison to someone you're sitting next to. You'll be evaluated in proportion to the resources that I entrusted to you personally. My call on each of your lives was distinct, and therefore your judgment will be equally distinct. To some I entrusted earthly wealth that you might now have heavenly treasure. To some I placed you in great darkness that you might now shine as the stars of heaven. For others, great trials and temptations were endured that today I might share my glory with you. To many, your faithful obedience will be rewarded with authority, power, and position in my eternal kingdom. For all my followers, the earthly crosses you once embraced will now be rewarded with eternal crowns. I gave each of you time for eternity. When I evaluate those things, and we will do that together, I will decide which rewards those that have overcome shall receive. My father is a great king, and there are many rewards and riches and blessings he would share with you. You may receive the crown of righteousness given to those of you who long for the day of my return and live with the hope of my coming in their heart. This crown is for all those that love my appearing before this day. You may receive the crown of life, which is prepared for those who faithfully endured temptation and chose to honor God with their lives. This is the crown that he has promised to them that love him. You may receive a crown of glory. That's for those of you who faithfully shepherded my flock, Lived as worthy examples to the sheep and willingly fed my sheep. To you, the chief shepherd will give the crown of glory. And you may receive the crown of faith given to those who persevered under all kinds of trials and trusted me through them. Others here will also be rewarded with authority in my kingdom, honorable places of service, verbal commendations, and other incorruptible riches fit for your service as priests and kings in my everlasting kingdom. Then you will all take your places as princes and princesses of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All of you will be glorified. Today you will receive your resurrected bodies for the rest of eternity. Today it will appear that you are a son and daughter of God. Today you will share my glory and be brighter and more radiant than you could ever imagine. Until now you have borne the image of earthly things, but today you shall bear the image of heaven. You have endured vile bodies, afflicted by corruption, dishonor, and weakness through sin. But now you will enjoy incorruption, purity, and the power of a glorious body like my own, purchased by my precious blood. Jesus turned and took his place before the throne. And boy, if you could feel the tension when we walked in, now you could cut the tension with a knife. Who's he going to call first? Is it going to be me? The strong angel with the scroll in his hand walked to the edge of the platform and unrolled the scroll. He scanned the first name and cried, Timulus Germanicus. Timulus rose from the crowd and made his way to the platform. He paused at the sapphire stairway leading up to the Sea of Crystal and then looked up at Jesus. And with a confident smile, he ascended the steps to meet his Savior. They stood face to face and had a private conversation that we couldn't hear. I wondered what they were talking about and contemplated what Jesus would say to me. While they were talking, something strange happened. It was like a biographical sketch of Timulus came across my mind. I could see his life playing out in front of me, and I understood what he was about to be rewarded for. I learned that Timulus Germanicus was from the 3rd century. He was born in Lyon, France, under the Roman Empire, and lived in a time of great persecution for the church. He was a poor man, a smith by trade, he was also a deacon in the church and cheerfully gave out of his very small resources to those that had greater need than he. He had been a bold witness of Christ and was persecuted for his faith and eventually tortured. Because he refused to stop speaking in the name of Jesus, Timulus was placed on a rack and bent backwards. He was scraped, which means his skin was removed from his body, and he was thrown to the lion's. And as he was on his knees being devoured by the lions, he raised his hands and said, Jesus, I'm yours. Jesus rose from his throne and he put his hands on Timulus' shoulders, who had then fell to his knees. And Jesus lifted his hands and raised them up. Jesus placed a glimmering crown of faith on his head. This is my friend, Timulus Germanicus. In him, I am well pleased. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And in that moment... Timulus was glorified. He was full of life and power and joy. And without a doubt, he was the most glorious being in the place next to Jesus himself. When he returned to his seat, marvelously radiant, like the North Star shimmering in a black sky, there was a buzz and a murmur of anticipation as we waited for the next person to stand before Jesus. Now I can tell you that I saw a host of people judge, maybe millions, I don't know, Time seemed to fly by because every second was filled with awe and wonder and glory. I can't describe all that I saw, but in the process I did notice some trends. I noticed that there was a great variety of glory and reward that was given out, as if the high king of heaven was emptying out the treasures of his kingdom upon his sons and daughters. Some received verbal commendations from Christ, like, Well done, my good and faithful servant, or, In you I am well pleased. Some were given new names, which were boldly pronounced before all, and to others Christ whispered something secret for them alone. I realized that there were also different degrees of glorification. Some glorified saints were more brilliant and beautiful than others, like stars shining with different degrees of brilliance, or faceted gemstones of different cut and color. Everyone was glorified, sharing in part of Christ's heavenly glory, but each with their own unique and dazzling way. Everyone was absolutely beautiful, but some were more resplendent than others. There were also differences of reward which seemed to be tied to the specific trials and temptations that his servants faithfully endured while on earth. Some received crowns, some were given stones that glimmered like stars, others received articles of regal clothing, and others were given special tokens of secret significance between them and Jesus. Many more were promised places of service, and future memorials in the New Jerusalem. I also notice that some people met Christ with a life nearly bankrupt of eternal significance. They received no reward. They received no verbal commendation. They were glorified, but they weren't as brilliant as others. But as they were ushered back to their seats, I notice in my heart that I loved them just the same. There was no envy or bitterness or competition. There was only a subtle feeling of sadness in my heart. And the sadness, I think, came from the fact that sin had entered their life after they had trusted Jesus. And as a result, they missed out on pleasing Jesus, their Savior, the one they were looking at face to face. That was the worst part of the eternal loss. As the Bema Judgment continued, I was also amazed at the variety of people in the Church of Christ. The angel with the scroll looked up and called out, Pomponia. Pomponia came forward. Pomponia was from the first century Rome. She was one of the first, if not the first, of the senatorial class that trusted in Jesus. In about 50 A.D., she was a Christian before Paul ever got to Rome. Because of her faith, she was ostracized by her friends, her peers, and even her husband for a short time. But her quiet witness and steadfast love for her husband enabled her to lead him to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Her husband became an elder in the church and they hosted, that they hosted in their home, And from their faithful witness came a church that survived for three centuries. Pomponia was on her knees before Jesus, and he set a glittering crown on her head and lifted her to her feet and said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And she was glorified in an instant. And as she returned to her seat, she was even more radiant than the angel she passed. Then the angel with the scroll looked up and called out, William Carey. If ever there was an unlikely hero in the Christian church, it was William Carey. He was an impoverished shoemaker from England. He didn't have two pennies to rub together, but he had a passion for the lost. About the 17th century, he went to Malta and started a mission there, and then spent the rest of his life reaching the lost in India. He was known as the father of modern-day missions, and because he was used to plan a missions mindset in the church, millions of people were reached with the gospel. Jesus did a fascinating thing at this point. He put his hands on William and he said, If anybody here is a Christian because William influenced them with missions, please stand. I can't tell you exactly, but there was probably close to a billion people who rose to their feet and clapped and yelled and said, Thank you, thank you. And William crumpled before Jesus, tears streaming down his face. Jesus placed a crown on his head and also wrote upon his forehead the name of God and lifted him up and said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. I am well pleased with you. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and you will go out no more. And in that moment, he was glorified, and he was more brilliant than any who had come before. And as he returned to his place, everyone was clapping and cheering, and we glorified the new name of God that William had been marked with because of the sheer joy of what Christ had done through his life. At that point, William turned back and looking back at Jesus, cried out, "Not unto us, O God, not unto us, but to Your name be all the glory." And as he lifted his hands in praise to the Lord Jesus, all the saints and angels joined him in this song.
1: King of kings and Lord of kings, you are.
0: As the song ended, and the angel before the throne opened his scroll, with a pause, he said, Angela Boyer. As soon as Angela's name was said, there was a fluttering among the angels. There was a real excitement and electricity among the hosts of heaven. Angela was obviously someone special. And before I could ask anyone why, her sketch came to my mind. Angela was a public school teacher in the 20th century in a western country. She ministered faithfully behind the scenes in a local church, quietly serving and loving people of her fellowship and hometown. She was a young single woman who remained single by choice so she could care for her sickly mother and her invalid sister. But the reason she was so famous in heaven was because of her prayer life. In fact, her prayer life touched the entire world. As a veil between our world and the spiritual world was pulled back, I could even see the spiritual battle she had won in intercessory prayer. Angel was a mighty prayer warrior, and her life at prayer had won victories over thousands of demonic schemes. To see the vivid contrast of her humble life on earth and her heavenly power of her prayers in the spiritual world was shocking. I had not known her name, but the angels and demons certainly did. She was a great enemy of the evil one, as she lifted people up from every area of the world, Angela lived and died, never having left her hometown. And yet her prayers for her family, friends, ministers, missionaries, political leaders, and God's will and glory had literally changed the world. Once again, Jesus said, "Please, if Angela's had an impact in your salvation, please stand." I don't know how much of the stadium stood, but it was a large majority. And Jesus set a golden crown on her head, placed a pair of shimmering earrings in her ears, and promised her a place of service near the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. Then, his eyes filled with joy and love, he whispered something to her that brought tears to her eyes. Then Jesus turned her her to the crowd and said, O Angela, I am so pleased with you. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And she was glorified in an instant, and her glory far surpassed anyone who had gone before her. It was 10 times the brilliance. And as she flew back to her seat, I thought, "Oh, that prayer thing. Why did I waste so much time doing things of so little worth? If only I had known." Next, the angel called Joseph Ray Robinson. Joseph was poor during the depression, born during the depression to a very poor family in the South. He was ostracized because of his race but he never became bitter. He worked diligently to support his five children and raise them in godly instruction and truth. He shined shoes, delivered papers, drove limos, and in his old age, he worked in office buildings as a security. Oh, wait, it was Joe the security guard, Joe from my office building. He was the guy I'd ran by this morning because I didn't have time to talk or listen. Joe was the guy with the sunny disposition that always drove me crazy. I learned that Joe, because of his race, had never been given a formal education, but he taught himself to read. He then filled his heart with scripture and had memorized almost the entire New Testament. Whenever he was near someone, as he shared, this, he shared the scripture with them. And as a result, the number of people that had been influenced by him was immense. What an impact he had. I saw that at least a hundred people from my office building alone were at the bema seat because Joe had shared Christ with them. And I thought to myself, now that we're in heaven, would I even be worthy to shine his shoes? An instant after hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, Joseph was glorified and crowned with a glorious crown. He returned to his seat radiant with the light of heaven. The angel called the next name, Sarah Ryan. Yes, not only was my security guy in heaven, but so was my cleaning lady. As Sarah made her way to Jesus, I learned about who she really was. I learned that her husband had deserted her with four small children and that she worked two jobs to provide for them. I also learned that her faithfulness and godliness was used to lead them each to faith in Jesus and their lives were responsible for many more at the Bema seat. I saw her life. It was right there in my mind. I saw that she had prayed for my children. I saw all the results of her prayers for my kids. Not only that, but I saw that she had prayed for my kids more than I had, and that her prayers had done more for my kids than my own. I was humbled and broken. Oh, this very morning, I didn't even take the time to say hello to this woman, yet she meant so much to me and my family. Now I wanted to spend a thousand years thanking her. What a difference a day in heaven makes. Jesus smiled at Sarah and said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. In you I am well pleased. Enter into my kingdom and rest from your labors and know that the reward of your works will follow you. With that she was glorified and returned to her place like a luminous beam. And in that moment I knew my turn was coming soon, my turn to stand before Jesus. Oh, if I could go back and do it again. If only I'd known how important this moment would be when I was still living on earth. The angel looked at the scroll and said, Daniel James Matheson. I slowly rose and made my way to the platform. I vaguely realized all that the church of history was looking at me, but that was nothing compared to the fact that I was about to walk up these steps and meet Jesus face to face. Only by the grace of God was I able to traverse those steps. I got to the top and I looked at the face of Jesus. Daniel, come closer. I drew near to my Savior, and then we had a conversation Jesus said, Daniel, I want to explain this judgment to you. I want you to know exactly what we're doing here. First of all, Daniel, you need to understand the purpose of the Bema Seat. You're not here to be punished for your sins. All of your sins have been cleansed with my blood, and your debt has been paid in full. I felt a flood of relief just knowing that Christ had dealt with all my sin. Being so close to him, I couldn't imagine ever being far again. This is about stewardship, Jesus said. I'm going to reward your faithfulness and stewardship of what I gave you. Daniel, I gave you 63 years of life, 51 which were lived after your conversion. I also gave you tremendous financial and material resources. I gave you time. I gave you my word and my spirit and particular spiritual gifts. And I will test your life actions in the light of eternal things. I trusted Jesus and said, okay. The life you lived is built on a foundation, me. You trusted me as your savior. And then everything you did after you trusted me is like building a house. To build that house, you use different types of materials. You can use cheap materials or you can use valuable materials. If you use cheap materials, then it's a cheap house. If you use valuable materials, then it's a valuable house. He said, Daniel, I want you to imagine your house is being tested by fire. All the things that are cheap will be immediately incinerated and the ashes will blow away, never to be seen again. But those things that are valuable, the gold and silver and precious stones will be purified. And it is with those things that you will be rewarded. Are you ready, Daniel? I'm ready, Jesus. Now, I've heard people say that my life flashed before my eyes. You've heard that phrase? Well, my life flashed before my eyes. When everyone else was up here, When I was watching their judgment, this whole thing seemed to last a minute and a half. Me, I think it lasted for 63 years. It was like we lived my entire life over again, but this time we did it together, and I saw my life from his perspective instead of mine. Even though Christ placed me in a loving Christian family with so much blessing and privilege, for the first 12 years of my life, the impression that struck my mind was sin. I mean, I just saw myself sinning time and time again. My attitudes were horrible, my self-centeredness was horrific, and my pride was utterly shameful. All of my life had no eternal value, and I knew that it would never stand the test of Christ's holy gaze. Even though I wasn't involved in many blatantly wicked actions, I was just a horrible, selfish, prideful sinner. I wasn't sad to see those years burn in the fire of Christ's gaze. In fact, I was glad all the sin was going to disappear. I wanted it to be gone. And I blessed Jesus for cleansing me. But you know what was fascinating? Even though I could see the horrible nature of my sin, it was as though Jesus couldn't see it. He was accepting and loving and passionate toward me. And that never changed throughout the entire judgment. I realized he doesn't see my sin. It's been covered by his blood. As every one of my sinful acts and worthless, worthless things were incinerated, I realized they were being blown away forever and that I would never be able to remember them again. But the most joyful moment up until this time happened when I was 12 years old. And Jesus showed me that special day that I trusted him and him alone for salvation. I was just an immature boy coming to grips with my personal sin and realizing I needed a savior. And on that day, I looked to Jesus and said, Jesus, please save me. And he saved me. Looking at my new birth from Jesus' perspective was amazing. I saw my soul go from death to life. I saw the Spirit of God enter the darkness of my soul and fill it with light. It was truly a miracle. And when I looked at Jesus, I could see the joy beaming from his face and his eyes were filled with tears. Daniel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Thank you for trusting me and me alone for your salvation. I just fell on my knees and bowed before him and said, my Lord and my God, thank you. I just kept saying thank you over and over again. His love washed over me. It was such a precious moment. Now we can really get to work, Daniel. From this point on, you're saved. And through my spirit, you possess the ability to accomplish things of eternal significance. And we went from that point on through the rest of my life. Now, I don't have 50 years with you, so I'm going to have to summarize a bit. Let me just give you a few observations. First was this. As I looked over the course of my life, I realized that Jesus' opinion of me should have been the most important thing. My problem was that I was self-conscious instead of being God-conscious. I noticed this pattern starting when I was very young. The pattern I'm talking about was a strong desire to be accepted by people and as a result doing whatever I could to keep them from rejecting me. I cared so much about what they thought of me, but I cared so little about what Jesus thought of me. So, of course, their ways became more important to me than Jesus' ways. It started in my elementary years, when Jesus reminded me of of the little boy who was my best friend, Timmy. One day we were playing on the jungle gym, just clowning around and having fun, when some other older boys that were part of the in-group came over and said, Hey, Daniel, do you want to come play baseball with us? They invited me. It felt so good to be invited into their crowd. Yeah, we'd love to come and play baseball. But they said, We've only got one more spot, and we want you. We don't want Timmy. Do you want to play? I looked at Timmy, and he looked at me, and he said, Go ahead, Daniel. I don't care. I said, Really? He said, Sure, go ahead. I really don't care. So off I went, running to play baseball with my new in-crowd friends, never looking back at Timmy. But here from the Bema seat, I could see what I did to him. Their approval was more important than Jesus's, and I hurt my best friend. The terrible pattern continued all, all the way through my college years with my good buddy Jerry. Jerry and I were inseparable. You know how it is, we dreamed of doing all these cool things together, starting with the decision to be roommates all the way through our college years, nothing was ever going to split us up, and so it came time for the frat houses to pledge, and the big time frat house asked me to be a part of theirs, because I was athletic, but they didn't want Jerry. Come on, you want Jerry, I pleaded. No, they didn't want Jerry. He said, it's okay, go ahead Daniel, I don't care. Really? No, I don't care. And he had a really big smile on his face. What a great guy. And off I went to my frat house. And I never looked back, but here from the bema seat I could see how I hurt my friend for my own sinful indulgence and it grieved me. If I could go back and do it again, I would think about what Jesus thought of me instead of what everyone else thought about me. That was my first observation. My second observation was this. The people are the most important thing in life. One of the things that became apparent to me throughout the entire judgment process was that people are very important to Jesus. I used to see people kind of like scenery in my life. You know, they were there to make my life better. They were there for me, but I wasn't there for them. They were instruments or tools for my purposes so that I could accomplish my personal goals. Jesus doesn't see people that way. Jesus loves people and has compassion on them. He sees them as eternal beings that need nurturing and service and care. And when it came to people, there were a few worthwhile instances in my life. Times when I allowed the Holy Spirit to work through me and really impact others for Christ. One of those times was with a guy I knew named Randall. He was a businessman and a youth worker at the youth ministry in our church. He came alongside of me when I was a senior in high school. Randall really took the time to talk to me, to encourage me, to pray with me, and even brought me into a place of leadership in the group. At that point, I was really growing and spending time with the Lord. It was probably the best part of my life spiritually. Randall encouraged me to help new people at the group feel comfortable. It was uncomfortable at first, probably because I'd only thought of myself my whole life. But one Sunday, there was a girl who showed up named Sandy. She was sitting by herself and obviously didn't fit in. So prompted by the Holy Spirit, I went over and introduced myself. We talked for a bit, and I asked her if she wanted to get involved with the youth ministry And she said yes, but she didn't know how. And so I took her and introduced her to some of the female youth leaders, and they were welcoming and made her feel like a part of the group. And as I saw this, I was so excited about the impact I'd had, and I said, whatever happened to Sandy Jesus? You will see soon enough, Sandy is here, and she cannot wait for your judgment to be done because she wants to speak with you. You had an unbelievably profound impact on her life. My knees buckled. And I realized that the approval of Jesus is probably the toughest thing I ever had to grapple with. His smile, his radiant eyes, he was so pleased with my simple obedience to his leading. I was awestruck to learn that Jesus isn't hard to please. Jesus showed me how just a few weeks later, Sandy prayed to receive Christ. And I saw that she went on to be a wonderful Christian leader. She started an evangelistic ministry on her college campus, and a number of people on her campus were saved. It was incredible. She grew up to be a very godly wife and mother that raised three beautiful kids who knew and loved Jesus. And all the people they impacted were part of my simple work to obey God by speaking to a new girl. Sandy went on to disciple women at her church. She also taught a woman's Bible study. Seeing just how much fruit came from sowing a single seed of obedience to God was truly overwhelming. I was shocked by the eternal impact that I had When I was just a senior high kid, if i had only known this when I was 17, I would have done so much more for Christ and cared so much less about what people thought of me. Oh, Daniel, when you obeyed my spirit, you became my servant and allowed me to accomplish eternal things in Sandy's life. Look at the beauty of those eternal things. Look at the reward and value of loving me and loving others, said Jesus. I started thinking about the wood, hay, and stubble passage in 1 Corinthians 3 and the cheap things we're tempted to build our life with. I used to think that just meant evil things, sinful things. Those are included there, but I realize it's much broader than that. What it really means is things that are worthless because they have no eternal significance. And I said, I don't think I built with much silver or gold. I was not a good steward of those worthwhile times, was I, Jesus? No, Daniel, the worthless times far outnumbered the worthwhile ones then I remembered Peggy. When I got into that frat house, they started leading me in a direction that I really didn't want to go. I left high school on fire, but that didn't last long. I didn't want to sin, and I was constantly convicted by the Holy Spirit for my sin, but I was more afraid of repenting and having my frat house buddies reject me. So instead of standing up for Christ, I started drinking a lot, and I became sexually active. I filled my college time with shallow and petty relationships with sorority girls. Then Peggy came into my life. She seemed so different. She wasn't a Christian, but she seemed so full of life and purity and innocence compared to everyone else I was hanging with. She wasn't sexually active. She wasn't drinking. She wasn't foul-mouthed. Peggy was just sweet and nice. Unfortunately, I was wicked, and it didn't take me long to lead her down the wrong path. I watched as the more I was a part of her life, the more desperate, irritable, and depressed she became. Things continued to spiral down until we eventually broke up as complete enemies. The entire situation was horrible to see from Jesus' point of view. I thought I was going to die right there standing in front of Jesus. Jesus, I'm responsible. It's my fault that she struggled so. What happened next? Peggy went through three marriages, all of which ended in divorce. She was abused by her first two husbands. I couldn't believe it. Oh, it's my fault. No, you are not fully responsible. Peggy was responsible for her own choices, and you are responsible for either edifying someone or being a stumbling block. But each person is responsible for their own works, whether good or bad. The real tragedy with Peggy is that you had an opportunity to lead her to me, and instead, you drew her to yourself. Whatever happened to her, After her third marriage, her life was falling apart, and a godly friend shared the gospel with her. Peggy trusted in me, and Daniel, she's here today, and she wants to see you. I was a little worried about that. She does? Don't be afraid, Daniel. Love covers a multitude of sins, and no spot of bitterness or hate will stain my kingdom. Peggy wants to let you know that you're a brother, and in me, that you are forgiven. In that moment, I just wanted so badly to live life all over again. If I could only do it again, I would have loved Jesus with all my heart and loved others, even my enemies. I wanted to go back and live for eternal things, not for worldly wealth or prestige. All, that, all that would matter is pleasing Jesus and living for him. My final observation was this. Things just look different from the bema seat. I mean, perspective is everything. My perspective from the Bima was completely different from the way I had seen and thought about life. Let me give you one example. Now, shortly before Jesus' return, I made a switch in my working relationships. It all started with Ben Hogan. Ben Hogan was the premier guy in my industry. One day, he unexpectedly called me up. My heart was pounding, and he said, Daniel, I would like to meet you for lunch because I want to talk to you about an opportunity. So we met for lunch, and Ben acted like we were best friends. He started flattering me, telling me how great I was and how impressed he was with my resume. He offered me a job to work for him and promised to double my salary, double my salary. I started imagining what I'd be able to buy, all the things I'd be able to do with more income, and I said, before I accept, I need to go talk to my boss. He said, don't wait. The offer won't be on the table long. My boss was John Mitchell. John Mitchell was a godly, honest man, He was one of my father's friends and gave me a job right out of college. He got me started, and I had done very well in his company. And I told him I was thinking of going with Ben Hogan. John wasn't really excited about that. He didn't really try to talk me out of it, but he said, Daniel, you should think very carefully about this offer. It's an important decision. And I thought, ooh, double salary, ooh, a chance to get in with the in crowd. And that old pull from school and college came back, and I said, I'm going, John. I'm sorry. And I said, I tell you what, John, I'll make a handshake agreement with you that I won't take any of the clients that I brought to your company for for at least three years, okay? Okay, John said. We shook hands on our no-compete agreement, and off I went, leaving him in the dust. I started with Hogan the next day, and his kind demeanor changed quickly. Ben started drilling me and ordering me to make unrealistic quotas, I began working hours that were ridiculous, but I was making more money than I had ever dreamed. I actually bought two houses, three cars, and a boat. I traveled all over the world. I wasn't seeing my family much, but I told myself it was only for a few short years, and then I'd be able to retire early and have everything I ever wanted. I was rich, well-known, and in demand. At least that's how I saw it down on earth. But looking at my life from the Bema seat, I saw myself as a slimy, selfish businessman that I was. I had become like Ben Hogan, a cruel, money-motivated man who didn't care about God or people. One day, Hogan said, "'Go get that new Century account.' And I said, "'Well, I can't.' "'Why not?' he questioned. "'Well, because it belongs to Mitchell, "'and I told him I would not go for any of those accounts.' "'He said, "'You have a no-compete contract?' I said, well, no, I didn't have an official contract because I didn't sign anything. He said, well, then there's no agreement. But I gave my word. We verbally agreed. He said, that doesn't matter, and our lawyers would destroy him in a court of law. Go get it. I can't do that, I stammered. He said, get it or you're fired. So I went and I grabbed the New Century account. It wasn't hard to do. I still had all the relationships. And when I did, I also tore the heart out of my old friend, John Mitchell, and I broke my word to him. After that, I lost contact with John. But here from the Bema seat, I saw how I devastated his business and hurt his family. A good man was ruined because of my own selfish gains. The rest of my life sped by from this time, and I was completely consumed with what I could accomplish monetarily. I was so focused on earthly things that I completely neglected my Heavenly Father. And the rest of my life, to be quite honest, was just incinerated before my eyes. Then Jesus said, Daniel, I gave you monetary resources beyond most people's wildest dreams. You'd be interested to know that you were in the wealthiest 1% of all human history, and yet you were never content with your financial blessings. You were a very selfish steward of the earthly wealth I gave you, and therefore you missed most of your opportunities to love others and stir up your spiritual gifts of hospitality and giving. You had tremendous human resources. You had godly parents who poured into your life. You had godly friends who poured into your life. You had godly pastors who taught you the word. Even so, you hardened your heart to my spirit and obeyed little of my truth, all so that you could be successful in the world's eyes and satisfy your own fleshly lusts and indulge your love of comfort. Even so, there were moments of obedience, faith, and love scattered throughout the course of your life. What little you built for my kingdom was built with silver, gold, and precious stones. Nevertheless, the vanity of your life far outweighed the faithfulness. You are saved by my blood and grace, yet so as by fire. I thought, what could I possibly hear that would be worse than that? And then I heard this. Daniel, my summary of your life is that you left your first love. Left your first love. I knew that it was true. I had wasted my life. I fell to my knees thinking I would never be able to rise again. You left your first love. I had asked him to save me, and then I completely neglected him. I hadn't allowed him to work through me at all. I was his servant, but I had only served myself. You left your first love. It was a completely true statement. There were no pretenses, no faking it, no one I could blame but myself. It was true, I'd left my first love. Then I heard the most gracious, glorious words. Daniel, though you were faithless, still I am faithful. I never left you, and I will never forsake you. Nothing can separate you from my love. Oh, thank you, Jesus. And Daniel, always remember that the old has gone, but the new is here. The old has passed away, and all things are made new. I was overwhelmed with the goodness and graciousness of Jesus, I could feel the tears flowing down my cheeks. I had thought there were no tears in heaven, but then I remembered the passage in Revelation that said Jesus would wipe away tears, presupposing that there are tears to wipe away. Then Jesus grabbed my hands and picked me up, and I felt something like a lightning bolt go through my body, and I was glorified in an instant. And in that moment, all the stuff that had been incinerated in my life, all my failure and sin was completely gone, My mortality was swallowed up with life, radiating glorious life. Jesus embraced me and then turned to the family of God and said, this is my beloved, Daniel James Matheson. Welcome him. The whole crowd went nuts, erupting in a roar of cheering and clapping. And as I returned to my place, I saw my wife and my kids in the crowd, beaming with joy and cheering like crazy. People all around were patting me on the back and hugging me and saying they were so happy for me. I was so overwhelmed with joy, and I finally felt whole. I thought, ah, this is what heaven's about. I get it now. I get it, God. Thank you, Jesus. Someone up near the platform went running up the stairs. They took off their crown that they received as a reward. I think it was a crown of faith. And ran up to the throne of Christ cast, and cast the glittering crown at his feet. I could tell it was an act of pure, joyous worship. And I saw others take their crowns, and they threw them down at the throne as well. And as they threw them down, they lay prostrate before Christ, and they worshipped him and praised him and magnified his name. And I was standing up on my seat just wishing I had a crown to throw down. Ah, to worship Jesus in that way. And as they threw down their crowns, all the saints started to sing. We all joined the song drawn out of our seats by the Spirit of God and the beauty of his holiness. And as we gazed on the King of kings and Lord of lords, we sang this song from the very core of our beings.
1: Who else commands?
0: After pouring out our hearts in worship to the Lord, for a long, long time, we all sat down to catch our breath. It wasn't long after that that the judgments were complete. And once the final scene was glorified, Jesus smiled and said, The day is now complete. I'm sure you've all got a lot of catching up to do. Now let me tell you something. It would be impossible for me to describe what thousands upon thousands of souls, each as radiant as the sun in its strength, look like when they all leap up in joy. It was the most amazing fireworks display you've ever seen. I sped out of the building to a place that I just intuitively knew my family would be. There were my wife and kids, glorified and full of joy. We just hugged and laughed and talked of Jesus' glory and what he had said to each of us. Then my parents arrived, alive and vibrant, distant family and friends. I ran into John Mitchell, the man I had broken my word to, And he ran to me like a father of the prodigal son and threw his arms around me. And he said, oh, Daniel, I love you. I saw Sandy, and she was far more glorious than me. And I was so happy for her that she had honored God with her life and could enjoy such glory. Sandy embraced me and said, oh, Daniel, thank you for pushing me toward Jesus. After speaking with Sandy, I turned, and there was Peggy. And there was no shame or anger in her eyes, only grace and purity and unconditional love we embraced each other so happy for the grace and love of Jesus. We forgave one another and talked about the good things of life. And as we were walking and talking, off in the distance, I heard another sound. Could it be another trumpet? No, it sounded different. A different sound and an irritating sound. It was a sound like I hadn't heard yet in heaven. Oh, no, no. It was my alarm clock. I opened my eyes and I thought, oh, no, it was a dream. And I looked And there was my wife in the bed. Oh, it was a dream. I want to go back. I just sat on the side of my bed, and I remembered all those things I said at the Bema seat. If only I had another chance. It was then I realized the goodness of God. It was as if he said to me, this is the first day of the rest of your life. What are you going to do with it? I looked at my wife, and I thought, you know, honey, life's going to be different for you from now on. I quietly slipped out of bed and poked my head in each of my children's bedrooms. They were so beautiful. How had I neglected them? I whispered, okay, daddy's coming home now. Life's going to be different from now on. I went into the living room and I grabbed my Bible, and I looked up the passages like 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. I read Romans 14 and Revelations 4 and 5, as well as some parables of Jesus talking about rewards. My dream was mostly doctrinally sound. Then I got down on my knees to pray and commit my life to seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So I just want to do this. Don't have a lot of time. It's a story, but one day it's not going to be a story. It's going to be real. And just as we sing this last song, we're going to worship, I would just challenge you. If your life is given to worthless things, but you want your life to be given to things of eternal value, you actually want to serve and walk with Jesus, then I encourage you to just repent in your heart and say, Jesus, help me. I don't want to stand before you one day and have my testimony be that I've left my first love. I want my life to be worthwhile. I want the point of my life to stand before you on that day and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. So if you need to repent, do, do whatever you need to do. Stand up, worship him, come down to the altar and kneel down. This is just between you and the Lord. Put, put your heart in his hands. Forget about everybody else. Right? When you stand before Jesus one day, <clears throat> there's not going to be a single person in this room that stands with you parents aren't going to stand with you. Your spouse isn't going to stand with you. Your friends aren't going to stand with you. You're not going to look at another human being and say, yeah, but it was their fault. They were there too. They brought me. It's you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. So right now it should be you and Jesus. And the decision to live for him is going to be between you and Jesus. So if his Holy Spirit is ministering your heart, as we sing this last song, just repent before him. Make it real between you and him and ask him to give you the strength that you need to change your life to live in a way that has eternal value.